The Moonstone, Part Twenty Nine. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Moonstone, by Wilkie Collins, read by Christine. The Discovery of the Truth, First Narrative, Chapter Six. Letter One. Miss Clack presents her compliments to Mr. Franklin Blake, and, in sending him the fifth chapter of her humble narrative, begs to say that she feels quite unequal to enlarge, as she could wish, on an event so awful under the circumstances as Lady Verinder's death. She has, therefore, attached to her own manuscripts copious extracts from precious publications in her possession, all bearing on this terrible subject, and may those extracts, Miss Clark fervently hopes, sound as the blast of a trumpet in the ears of her respected kinsman, Mr. Franklin Blake. Letter 2 Mr. Franklin Blake presents his compliments to Miss Clark, and begs to thank her for the fifth chapter of her narrative. In returning the extract sent with it, he will refrain from mentioning any personal objection which he may entertain to this species of literature, and will merely say that the proposed additions to the manuscript are not necessary to the fulfillment of the purpose that he has in view. Letter 3 Miss Clegg begs to acknowledge the return of her extracts. She affectionately reminds Mr. Franklin Blake that she is a Christian, and that it is, therefore, quite impossible for him to offend her. Miss Clark persists in feeling the deepest interest in Mr. Blake, and pledges herself, on the first occasion, when sickness may lay him low, to offer him the use of her extracts for the second time. In the meanwhile, she would be glad to know, before beginning the final chapters of her narrative, whether she may be permitted to make her humble contribution complete, by availing herself of the light which later discoveries have thrown on the mystery of the moonstone. Letter 4 Mr. Franklin Blake is sorry to disappoint Miss Clark. He can only repeat the instructions which he had the honor of giving her when she began her narrative. She is requested to limit herself to her own individual experience of persons and events, as recorded in her diary. Later discoveries she will be good enough to leave to the pens of those persons who can write in the capacity of actual witnesses. Letter 5 Miss Clegg is extremely sorry to trouble Mr. Franklin Blake with another letter. Her extracts haven't been returned, and the expression of her matured views on the subject of the moonstone has been forbidden. Miss Clark is painfully conscious that she ought, in the worldly phrase, to feel herself put down. But no, Miss Clark has learned perseverance in the school of adversity. Her object in writing is to know whether Mr. Blake, who prohibits everything else, prohibits the appearance of the present correspondence in Miss Clark's narrative. Some explanation of the position in which Mr. Blake's interference has placed her as an authoress seems due on the ground of common justice, and Miss Clack, on her side, is most anxious that her letters should be produced to speak for themselves. Letter 6 Mr. Franklin Blake agrees to Miss Clack's proposal, on the understanding that she will kindly consider this intimation of his consent as closing the correspondence between them. Letter 7. Miss Clark feels it an act of Christian duty, before the correspondence closes, to inform Mr. Franklin Blake 
that his last letter, evidently intended to offend her, has not succeeded in accomplishing the object of the writer. She affectionately requests Mr. Blake to retire to the privacy of his own room, and to consider with himself whether the training which can thus elevate a poor weak woman above the reach of insult be not worthy of greater admiration that he is now disposed to feel for it. On being favoured with an intimation to that effect, Miss Clark solemnly pledges herself to send back the complete series of her extracts to Mr. Franklin Blake. To this letter no answer was received. Comment is needless. Signed, Drusilla Clark. Chapter 7 The foregoing correspondence will sufficiently explain why no choice is left to me but to pass over Lady Verinder's death, with a simple announcement of the fact which ends my fifth chapter. Keeping myself for the future strictly within the limits of my own personal experience, I have next to relate that a month elapsed from the time of my aunt's decease before Rachel Verinder and I met again. That meeting was the occasion of my spending a few days under the same roof with her. In the course of my visit something happened, relative to her marriage engagement with Mr. Godfrey Applewhite, which is important enough to require special notice in these pages. When this last of many painful family circumstances had been disclosed, my task will be completed, for I shall then have told all that I know as an actual and most unwilling witness of events. My aunt's remains were removed from London, and were buried in the little cemetery attached to the church in her own park. I was invited to the funeral with the rest of the family, but it was impossible, with my religious views, to rouse myself in a few days only from the shock which this death had caused me. I was informed, moreover, that the rector of Frisinghall was to read the service. Having myself in past times seen this clerical castaway making one of the players at Lady Swearinder's whist table, I doubt, even if I had been fit to travel, whether I should have felt justified in attending the ceremony. Lady Verinder's death left her daughter under the care of her brother-in-law, Mr. Abelwhite the Elder. He was appointed guardian by the will, until his niece married, or came of age. Under these circumstances, Mr. Godfrey informed his father, I suppose, of the new relation in which he stood towards Rachel. At any rate, in ten days from my aunt's death, the secret of the marriage engagement was no secret at all, within the circle of the family, and the grand question for Mr. Abelwhite Sr., another confirmed castaway, was how to make himself and his authority most agreeable to the wealthy young lady who was going to marry his son. Rachel gave him some trouble at the outset, about the choice of a place in which she could be prevailed upon to reside. The house in Montagu Square was associated with the calamity of her mother's death. The house in Yorkshire was associated with the scandalous affair of the last moonstone. Her guardian's own residence at Frisinghall was open to neither of those objections. But Rachel's presence in it, after her recent bereavement, operated as a check on the gaieties of her cousin, the Miss Abelwhites, and she herself requested that her visit might be deferred to a more favourable opportunity. It ended in a proposal, emanating from old Mr. Abelwhite, to try a furnished house at Brighton. His wife, an invalid daughter, and Rachel were to inhabit it together, and were to expect him to join them later in the season. They would see no society but a few old friends, 
and they would have his son Godfrey travelling backwards and forwards by the London train, always at their disposal. I describe this aimless flitting about from one place of residence to another, this incessitate restlessness of body, and appalling stagnation of soul, merely with the view to arriving at results. The event which, under providence, proved to be the means of bringing Rachel Verinder and myself together again, was no other than the hiring of the house at Brighton. My aunt Abelwhite is a large, silent, fair-complexioned woman, with one noteworthy point in her character. From the hour of her birth she has never been known to do anything for herself. She has gone through life accepting everybody's help and adopting everybody's opinions. A more hopeless person, in a spiritual point of view, I have never met with. There is absolutely, in this perplexing case, no obstructive material to work upon. Aunt Abelwhite would listen to the Grand Lama of Tibet exactly as she listens to me, and would reflect his views quite as readily as she reflects mine. She found the furnished house at Brighton by stopping at an hotel in London, composing herself on a sofa, and sending for her son. She discovered the necessary servants by breakfasting in bed one morning, still at the hotel, and giving her maid a holiday on condition that the girl would be enjoying herself by fetching Miss Cluck. I found her placidly fanning herself in her dressing gown at eleven o'clock. Drusilla, dear, I want some servants. You are so clever. Please get them for me. I looked round the untidy room. The church bells were going for a weekday service. They suggested a word of affectionate remonstrance on my part. Oh, aunt, I said sadly, is this worthy of a Christian Englishwoman? Is the passage from time to eternity to be made in this manner? My aunt answered, I'll put on my gown, Drusilla, if you will be kind enough to help me. What was to be said after that? I have done wonders with murderesses. I have never advanced an inch with Aunt Abelwhite. Where is the list, I asked, of the servants whom you require? My aunt shook her head. She hadn't even energy enough to keep the list. Rachel has got it, dear, she said, in the next room. I went into the next room and saw, saw Rachel again, for the first time since we had parted in Montagu Square. She looked pitiably small and thin in her deep mourning. If I attached any serious importance to such a perishable trifle as personal appearance, I might be inclined to add that hers was one of those unfortunate complexions which always suffer when not relieved by a border of white next the skin. But what are our complexions and our looks? Hydrances and pitfalls, dear girls, which beset us on our way to higher things. Greatly to my surprise, Rachel rose when I entered the room and came forward to meet me with outstretched hand. I am glad to see you, she said. Drusilla, I have been in the habit of speaking very foolishly and very rudely to you on former occasions. I beg your pardon. I hope you will forgive me. My face, I suppose, betrayed the astonishment I felt at this. She colored up for a moment and then proceeded to explain herself. In my poor mother's lifetime, she went on, her friends were not always my friends, too. Now I have lost her. My heart turns for comfort to the people she liked. She liked you. Try to be friends with me, Drusilla, if you can. To any rightly constituted mind, the motive thus acknowledged was simply shocking. Here in Christian England was a young woman in a state of bereavement, with so little idea of where to look for true comfort, 
that she actually expected to find it among her mother's friends. Here was a relative of mine, awakened to a sense of her shortcomings toward others, under the influence not of conviction and duty, but of sentiment and impulse. Most deplorable to think of, but, still, suggestive of something hopeful, to a person of my experience in plying the good work. There could be no harm, I thought, in ascertaining the extent of the change which the loss of her mother has wrought in Rachel's character. I decided, as a useful test, to probe her on the subject of her marriage engagement to Mr. Godfrey Abelwhite. Having first met her advances with all possible cordiality, I sat by her on the sofa at her own request. We discussed family affairs and future plans, always expecting that one future plan which was to end in her marriage. Try as I might to turn the conversation that way, she resolutely declined to take the hint. Any open reference to the question on my part would have been premature at this early stage of our reconciliation. Besides, I had discovered all I wanted to know. She was no longer the reckless, defiant creature whom I had heard and seen on the occasion of my martyrdom in Montagu Square. This was, of itself, enough to encourage me to take her future conversion in hand, beginning with a few words of earnest warning directed against the hasty forming of the marriage tie, and so getting on the higher things. Looking at her now, with this new interest, and calling to mind the headlong suddenness with which he had met Mr. Godfrey's matrimonial views, I felt the solemn duty of interfering with a fervor which assured me that I should achieve no common results. Rapidity of proceeding was, as I believed, of importance in this case. I went back at once to the question of the servants wanted for the furnished house. Where is the list, dear? Rachel produced it. Cook, kitchen-maid, housemaid, and footman, I read. My dear Rachel, these servants are only wanted for a term, the term during which your garden has taken the house. We shall have great difficulty in finding persons of character and capacity to accept a temporary engagement of that sort, if we try in London. Has the house in Brighton been found yet? Yes, Godfrey has taken in, and persons in the house wanted him to hire them as servants. He thought they would hardly do for us, and came back having settled nothing. And you have no experience yourself in these matters, Rachel? None whatever. And Aunt Oblewhite won't exert herself. No, poor dear, don't blame her, Drusilla. I think she is the only really happy woman I have ever met with. There are degrees in happiness, darling. We must have a little talk some day on that subject. In the meantime, I will undertake to meet the difficulty about the servants. Your aunt will write a letter to the people of the house. She will sign a letter if I write it for her, which comes to be the same thing. Quite the same thing. I shall get the letter, and I will go to Brighton tomorrow. How extremely kind of you! We will join you as soon as you are ready for us. And you will stay, I hope, as my guest. Brighton is so lively, you are sure to enjoy it. In those words the invitation was given, and the glorious prospect of interference was opened before me. It was then the middle of the week. By Saturday afternoon the house was ready for them. In that short interval I had sifted, not the characters only, but the religious views as well, of all the disengaged servants who applied to me, and had succeeded in making a selection which my conscience approved. I also discovered and called on two serious friends of mine, 
residence in the town, to whom I knew I could confide the pious object which had brought me to Brighton. One of them, a clerical friend, kindly helped me to take sittings for our little party in the church in which he himself ministered. The other, a single lady, like myself, placed the resources of her library, composed throughout of precious publications, entirely at my disposal. I borrowed half a dozen works, all carefully chosen with a view to Rachel. When these had been judiciously distributed in the various rooms she would be likely to occupy, I considered that my preparations were complete. Sound doctrine in the servants who waited on her, sound doctrine in the minister who preached to her, sound doctrine in the books that lay on her table. Such was the triple welcome which my zeal had prepared for the motherless girl. A heavenly composure filled my mind on that Saturday afternoon, as I sat at the window waiting the arrival of my relatives. The giddy throng passed and repassed before my eyes. Alas, how many of them felt my exquisite sense of duty done! An awful question. Let us not pursue it. Between six and seven the travellers arrived. To my indescribable surprise they were escorted not by Mr. Godfrey, as I had anticipated, but by the lawyer, Mr. Bruff. "'How do you do, Miss Clark?' he said. "'I mean to stay this time.' That reference to the occasion on which I had obliged him to postpone his business to mine, when we were both visiting in Montagu Square, satisfied me that the old wardling had come to Brighton with some object of his own in view. I had prepared quite a little paradise for my beloved Rachel, and here was the serpent already. "'Godfrey was very much vexed, Drusilla, not to be able to come with us,' said my aunt Abelwhite. "'There was something in the way which kept him in town. Mr. Bruff volunteered to take his place, and make a holiday of it till Monday morning. "'By the by, Mr. Bruff, I am ordered to take exercise, and I don't like it.' "'That,' added aunt Abelwhite, pointing out of window to an invalid, going by in a chair on wheels, drawn by a man, is my idea of exercise.' If it's air you want, you get it in your chair, and if it's fatigue you want, I'm sure it's fatigue enough to look at the man. Rachel stood silent at a window by herself, with her eyes fixed on the sea. Tired, love? I inquired. No, only a little out of spirits, she answered. I have often seen the sea, on our Yorkshire coast, with that light on it, and I was thinking, Drusilla, of the days that can never come again. Mr. Braff remained to dinner and stayed through the evening. The more I saw him, the more certain I felt that he had some private end to serve in coming to Brighton. I watched him carefully. He maintained the same appearance of ease and talked the same godless gossip, hour after hour, until it was time to take leave. As she shook hands with Rachel, I caught his hard and cunning eyes resting on her for a moment, with a peculiar interest and attention. She was plainly concerned in the object that he had in view. He said nothing out of the common to her or to anyone on leaving. He invited himself to luncheon on the next day, and then he went away to his hotel. It was impossible the next morning to get my aunt Abelwhite out of her dressing gown in time for church. Her invalid daughter, suffering from nothing in my opinion but incurable laziness inherited from her mother, announced that she meant to remain in bed for the day. Rachel and I went alone together to church. A magnificent sermon was preached by my gifted friend on the heathen indifference of the world to the sinfulness of little sins. 
For more than an hour his eloquence, assisted by his glorious voice, thundered through the sacred edifice. I said to Rachel when we came out, "'Has it found its way to your heart, dear?' And she answered, "'No, it has only made my head ache.' This might have been discouraging to some people, but, once embarked on a career of manifest usefulness, nothing discourages me. We found Aunt Abelwhite and Mr. Bruff at luncheon. When Rachel declined eating anything and gave us a reason for it that she was suffering from a headache, the lawyer's cunning instantly saw and seized the chance that she had given him. "'There is only one remedy for a headache,' said this horrible old man. "'A walk, Miss Rachel, is a thing to cure you. I am entirely at your service if you will honor me by accepting my arm.' "'With the greatest pleasure. A walk is the very thing I was longing for.' "'It's past two, I gently suggested, "'and the afternoon service Rachel begins at three. "'How can you expect me to go to church again?' "'she asked petulantly. "'With such a headache as mine!' "'Mr. Bruff officiously opened the door for her. "'In another minute more they were both out of the house. "'I don't know when I have felt the solemn duty "'of interfering so strongly as I felt it at the moment. "'But what was to be done?' Nothing was to be done but to interfere at the first opportunity, later in the day. On my return from the afternoon service, I found that they had just got back. One look at them told me that the lawyer had said what he wanted to say. I had never before seen Rachel so silent and so thoughtful. I had never before seen Mr. Bruff pay her such devoted attention, and look at her with such marked respect. He had, or pretended that he had, an engagement to dinner that day, and he took an early leave of us all, intending to go back to London by the first train the next morning. "'Are you sure of your own resolution?' he said to Rachel at the door. "'Quite sure,' she answered, and so they parted. The moment his back was turned, Rachel withdrew to her own room. She never appeared at dinner. Her maid, the person with the cap ribbons, was sent downstairs to announce that her headache had returned.' I ran up to her and made all sorts of sisterly offers through the door. It was locked, and she kept it locked. Plenty of obstructive material to work on here. I felt greatly cheered and stimulated by her locking the door. When her cup of tea went up to her the next morning, I followed it in. I sat by her bedside and said a few earnest words. She listened with languid civility. I noticed my serious friend's precious publications huddled together on a table in a corner. Had she chanced to look into them? I asked. Yes, and they had not interested her. Would she allow me to read a few passages of the deepest interest, which had probably escaped her eye? No, not now. She had other things to think of. She gave these answers with her attention apparently absorbed in folding and refolding the, the frilling on her nightgown. It was plainly necessary to rouse her by some reference to those worldly interests, which she still had at heart. "'Do you know, love,' I said, "'I had an odd fancy yesterday about Mr. Bruff. "'I thought, when I saw you after your walk with him, "'that he had been telling you some bad news.' "'Her fingers dropped from the trifling of her nightgown, "'and her fierce black eyes flashed at me. "'Quite the contrary,' she said. "'It was news I was interested in hearing, "'and I am deeply indebted to Mr. Bruff for telling me of it.' "'Yes,' I said, in a tone of gentle interest.' Her fingers went back to the trifling, and she turned her head sullenly away from me. 
I had been met in this manner, in the course of plying the good work, hundreds of times. She merely stimulated me to try again. In my dauntless zeal for her welfare, I ran the great risk and openly allude to her marriage engagement. News you were interested in hearing, I repeated. I suppose, my dear Rachel, that must be news of Mr. Godfrey Abelwhite. She started up in the bed and turned deadly pale. It was evidently on the tip of her tongue to retort on me with the unbrilled insolence of former times. She checked herself, laid her head back on the pillow, considered a minute, and then answered in these remarkable words. I shall never marry Mr. Godfrey Abelwhite. It was my turn to start at that. What can you possibly mean? I exclaimed. The marriage is considered by the whole family as a settled thing. Mr. Godfrey Applewhite is expected here today, she said doggedly. Wait till he comes and you will see. But my dear Rachel, she rang the bell at the head of her bed. The person with the cab ribbons appeared. Penelope, my bath, let me give her her due. In the state of my feelings at that moment, I do sincerely believe that she had hit on the only possible way of forcing me to leave the room. But the mere worldly mind my position towards Rachel might have been viewed as presenting difficulties of no ordinary kind. I had reckoned on leading her to higher things by means of a little earnest exhortation on the subject of her marriage. And now, if she was to be believed, no such event as her marriage was to take place at all. But ah, my friends, a working Christian of my experience, with an evangelizing prospect before her, takes broader views than these. Supposing Rachel really broke off the marriage, on which the Abelwhites, father and son, counted as a settled thing, what would be the result? It could only end, if she held firm, in an exchanging of hard words and bitter accusations on both sides. And what would be the effect on Rachel when the stormy interview was over? A salutary moral depression would be the effect. Her pride would be exhausted, her stubbornness would be exhausted, by the resolute resistance which it was in her character to make under the circumstances. She would turn for sympathy to the nearest person who had sympathy to offer, and I was the nearest person, brimful of comfort, charged to overflowing with reasonable and reviving words. Never had the evangelizing prospect looked brighter to my eyes than it looked now. She came down to breakfast, but she ate nothing, and hardly uttered a word. After breakfast she wandered listlessly from room to room, then suddenly roused herself and opened the piano. The music she selected to play was of the most scandalously profane sort, associated with performances on the stage which it curdles one's blood to think of. It would have been premature to interfere with her at such a time as this. I privately ascertained the hour at which Mr. Godfrey Abelwhite was expected, and then I escaped the music by leaving the house. Being out alone, I took the opportunity of calling upon my two resident friends. It was an indescribable luxury to find myself indulging in earnest conversation with serious persons. Infinitely encouraged and refreshed, I turned my steps back again to the house, in excellent time to await the arrival of our expected visitor. I entered the dining-room, always empty at that hour of the day, and found myself face to face with Mr. Godfrey Abelwhite. He made no attempt to fly the place. Quite the contrary. He advanced to meet me with the utmost eagerness. Dear Miss Clark, I have been only waiting to see you. 
Chance set me free of my London engagements today sooner than I had expected, and I have got here, in consequence earlier than my appointed time. Not the slightest embarrassment encumbered his explanation, though this was his first meeting with me after the scene in Montagu Square. He was not aware, it's true, of my having been a witness of that scene. But he knew, on the other hand, that my attendances at the mother's small clothes and my relations with friends attached to other charities must have informed me of his shameless neglect of his ladies and of his poor. And yet there he was before me, in full possession of his charming voice and his irresistible smile. "'Have you seen Rachel yet?' I asked. He sighed gently and took me by the hand. I should certainly have snatched my hand away if the manner in which he gave his answer had not paralyzed me with astonishment. "'I have seen Rachel,' he said with perfect tranquillity. "'You are aware, dear friend, that she was engaged to me. Well, she has taken a sudden resolution to break the engagement. Reflection has convinced her that she'll best consult her welfare and mine by retracing a rash promise and leaving me free to make some happier choice elsewhere. That is the only reason she will give.' and the only answer she will make to every question that I can ask of her. "'What have you done on your side?' I inquired. "'Have you submitted?' "'Yes,' he said, with the most unruffled composure. "'I have submitted.' His conduct under the circumstances was so utterly inconceivable that I stood bewildered with my hand in his. It is a piece of rudeness to stare at anybody, and it is an act of indelicacy to stare at a gentleman.' I committed both those improprieties. And I said, as if in a dream, What does it mean? Permit me to tell you, he replied. And suppose we sit down. He led me to a chair. I have an indistinct remembrance that he was very affectionate. I don't think he put his arm round my waist to support me, but I'm not sure. I was quite helpless, and his ways with ladies were very endearing. At any rate, we sat down. I can answer for that, if I can answer for nothing more. End of part 29